This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. Here is this week's message. It has been so long and so dark. And now I believe again, right? Do you believe? That's right. I believe, and it feels so good. You know, uh, I had the uh, personal opportunity to have lunch with Houston Nutt a few months ago, and I knew right then that apart from how the football tit actually did on the one loss record, that the spirit had already returned. And you know why? Because somebody had returned who wasn't doing it just as a job. They were doing it because they believed in it. And they believed in what it could do for young men, and they believed in what it could do for our state, and they remembered how it could have an impact. And as I was experiencing kind of that excitement last night, just thinking about, you know, we have really done good, and it couldn't happen to a nicer guy with greater class and greater dignity, I thought, you know, what I would love to do is to help the church recover its rightful place in the community and in the state, and in the world. The same way the passion of a young coach has returned Razorbackism to Arkansas, right? Wouldn't you you like to be part of a church movement like that? And the only way it's going to happen is when the church becomes serious about the qualities that are behind me. Now, we've talked about two of those, In the past, we've looked here, you know, talking about being passionately committed to Jesus Christ because there's a passion that has to flow out of the people of God. We've talked about that there's a standard of measurement, and that's by being biblically measured. This morning, we're going to look at another component of that lifestyle, and that's being morally pure. You might take your Bibles and turn to Romans 13 while I take off this before it becomes blasphemous. Romans chapter 13. Now I want you to know if you're like the first service, this is not going to be an easy talk. Okay? And the reason I say that is because we live in, a, in very difficult times where the issue of morality is a very sensitive subject from the very lowest quarters of our society to the very highest office in our land. One of the frustrations that I have at times is being a Christian moralist. And sometimes it's, it's hard to live in a world that has discarded or counts so superficially our deep moral values. Sometimes it's hard to be a Christian moralist. To believe in absolutes when so many other people, including Christians, have somehow decided not to believe in absolutes. To believe that character counts in marriage and in social life and on the job, and it counts much more than anyone could know. And no matter how much economic prosperity we have, it could never cover for that or be as secure as that. To believe that there are rules that apply to everyone. To be convinced that our nation's present complacency with ever-lowering moral standards is nothing less than self-induced cultural lethal injection. It's hard to be a Christian moralist today. 
I keep telling myself, by the way, to lighten up. I have to tell myself that a lot, but I keep wincing at what I hear and worrying at what I see. And I don't know about you, but I find myself now talking back to the TV a lot. <laughs> I think my family's starting to worry about me. I just start interacting with it. And there are times when the question, just the question, whether it's driving around or sitting at home or opening the newspaper, that this huge question just comes over my life and ruins my day. And it's the question, how much lower? Do you feel that kind of heaviness in the world in which we live? I know you do. The ancient world called lifestyles that are being propagated today like ours paganism. It was just a short coined term to describe the indulgences and the immoralities that now are practiced everywhere as a right. Who could have imagined just a generation ago that an America like today would exist? An America where violent crime has increased 500% while the population has only grown 40%. In America, where only one in four adults today now believe in moral absolutes, where according to a recent poll, 82% of all students believe that right and wrong are relative terms, and that even the idea of morality is a ridiculous concept. In America, where there are more psychics on the internet than churches. In America, where violent movies and video games have been shown by all kinds of research to desensitize children's minds the same way military soldiers are desensitized so they can find the freedom in their conscience to kill. In America, where college students last spring rioted all over the United States for the personal right to be drunk and to binge drink. In America, where movies and television sitcoms now seem to revel in profanity and nudity and perversion and sexual in innuendo and gutter humor before a shock-addicted culture that gets bored and then has to ask for more and is willing to pay for it. In America, where our political conversations are consumed not with noble ideas, but with X-rated dialogue and the moral discussions go no deeper than what is, is. That's our world. David Wells, in his fine book, Losing Our Virtue, says, In one matter, America stands almost alone, along with certain parts of Western Europe. Together, this is the first time that a civilization has existed that, to a significant extent, does not believe in objective right and wrong. We are traveling blind, stripped of our moral compass. And you know, in losing this moral compass, we also have become incomprehensible to ourselves. Because right and wrong is what defines life and makes it secure and meaningful. Seventy-five years ago, if you asked Americans a basic question, a question of hu human identity, at the very basic level, who are we? Most Americans would have come back with a fa fairly standard answer. We are moral beings, made in the image of God, responsible to Him. And I want you to know I cannot stress how important that answer was, because it was that answer that framed and shaped all of life and how we acted and who we were and how we reacted and what community life was about and how we raised our families. 
because we were moral beings made in the image of God and responsible to Him. But now all that has changed. And now when the question is asked, who are we? A plethora of answers comes back that has disfigured America and tribalized our communities into little groups and sects who all have different understandings about what that means. I am my genes. I am my past. I am my gender. I am my sexual orientation. I am the moment. I am what I do. I am a minority. I am a victim. And so on and so forth. And life and love and hopes and dreams and choices and pain mean nothing more than who I am. And when who I am falls so far short of the original who am I, that is a moral being created in the image of God, then our choices and our lifestyles become something totally different. We become pagan. And our world suffers. And we suffer. What's a church to do in a world like that? How do you respond? Do you retreat? Do you give in? Do you just decide to give up? Does it seem too big to you today? Does it culture seem just like a massive tsunami that's about to sweep over you and you have no choice in the matter? You'll just simply be drenched and lost at sea in the process? You know, others who have gone before us have shown that there is hope even in the midst of the moral madness. For instance, if you take the church of Jesus Christ in the first three centuries, you find a church that was engaged in a hostile world, more morally mad than ours ever even thought to be, at least at this point. Now, we may get to their point. Seldom did marriages last at the time that the Bible was written, the New Testament, Paul and Peter's letters. Marriages in the Roman Empire did not last till death. Most ended in divorce. There was a complete breakdown of the Roman family. Infidelity between marriage partners became simply an accepted fact. It's just what you did. I found numerous quotes in my research, one of which was a woman telling her husband, did we not agree in this marriage that after we were married, we would just simply both do as we pleased? Isn't that the understanding? Historian Will Durant found one Roman writer declaring that a married man content with only two lovers on the side was a paragon of fidelity. I mean, that was a really righteous guy back then. Pornographic poetry circulated freely among the young. A pure woman was cynically observed to be, and I'm quoting the poet Ovid, only those girls who had never been asked. Alcoholism was rampant among Roman men. Abortion was rampant among Roman women. Prostitution and homosexuality flourished. Violent entertainment became more and more a staple of Roman life because they were bored and prosperous and restless and they needed something to help them escape that boredom and that restlessness because they didn't think of anything higher than themselves. And so they built a great Colosseum that stands even today in Rome, the Roman Colosseum. And when that Roman Colosseum was completed, Titus dedicated that Roman Colosseum by having the arena floor flooded and he reproduced the battle of the Corinthians and the Corsithians. He had little ships made, and he brought in captives and criminals and those who had become captives of foreign wars 
And he made them play out those roles of that war on that boat, yet with real spears and real swords, until the waters of the arena ran red with blood. And you couldn't finish until every person on the other side had been brutally butchered. And the Romans loved it. They loved it. And thus became an insatiable appetite between bored people for more violence and more blood. And it was into that culture that the early church dared to venture. Well, how did they do? Well, I want you to know here this morning that there were many, many people who were courageously proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ. But I also want you to know that from every historian's standpoint, this strange new teaching of Jesus, and it was new because it had just happened, about His resurrection and new life, that that teaching would have been swallowed up with a hundred other pagan religions that disappeared off the landscape after Rome disappeared if it had not been for one thing. One thing. And what was that? It would have disappeared if those Christians proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ would have lived like everybody else. If they would have just simply lived like everybody else, there would be no Christianity today. But then that's just the point. They didn't live like everybody else. They lived differently from everybody else. They lived in a way that everybody else marveled and admired, even when they hated them. Marcus Aurelius hated the Christians, but he couldn't help but admire their purity and their high standards of living, and he couldn't figure out how they had the energy to get there. But they did. And so their lifestyles became compelling. They were so full of life, especially before a morally bankrupt pagan world, that just simply couldn't help but notice. Listen to Michael Green, the author of the book Evangelism in the Early Church. He writes this, The link between holy living and effective evangelism could hardly be connected more strongly. In particular, Christians stood out and they stood out for their chastity, their hatred of cruelty, their civil obedience, their good citizenship. They did not, like many Romans, kill their unwanted babies through exposure. They did not swear. They refused to have anything to do with idolatry, and everyone recognized the pure life and the devoted love of the Christians. One of the early church leaders, Justin, put it this way, We who formerly delighted in fornication now embrace chastity alone. We who valued above all things the acquisition of wealth, now we have brought all that we have to share in a common stock. We who hated and destroyed one another and because of our differences of life would not live with men of another tribe, now since the coming of Christ, we live happily among them. A second century letter describes Christians as follows. They marry and have children just like everyone else, but they do not kill their unwanted babies. They offered a shared table to everyone in love, but never a shared bed in lust. They are present in the flesh, but they simply do not live according to the flesh. Now, how did this morally pure lifestyle affect a pagan, barbarous world, lusting and bloodletting and taking advantage of one another. How did it affect them? 
Well, I want to give you just three pictures that kind of help tell the story because, you know, when the Christian message is partnered with a true Christian lifestyle, it becomes an irresistible influence. Now, this first picture up on the screen shows you what the Roman world looked like at the end of the first century, and all those little red dots are churches. Now, if you have a Bible and it has maps and you look back, you'll probably see this picture because those are part of the journeys of the Apostle Paul and others setting up churches. But I want you to know those churches were established under some of the most hostile of conditions. A world that if we were there, we would think there's no way we can move forward. And yet I want you to look at the Roman world in the second century. There are all those churches. Historians tell us that in every Roman province of the empire, there was a flourishing church. And now the church had actually moved out into foreign countries and among the barbarians, especially in Gaul. Then how about the third century? There's the church. Against all odds, look at it. Is it shrinking back or moving forward? Now it's not only in every province, but in many of the Roman provinces of the world, these blood letters, this deteriorating family that we saw back in the first century. Now in every one of those provinces, Christianity is in many cases now a majority. And by this time, the Roman emperor has taken notice. And it would only be 25 years later until Constantine proclaimed Christianity the religion of the empire. Is that not amazing? Does that show a church shrinking back, retreating, giving up, and giving in? No. It shows the power of a church that's morally pure. Morally pure. Now, why do I show you those pictures? Because I want to give three simple reasons for giving you all this information. Here's the first one. Contrary to what most Christians might think, the moral chaos and madness that we see with such alarm today is not a cause for despair or to retreat. On the contrary, it offers us, this church, as well as others, a great opportunity and context to live out the gospel now. The darker the night, the brighter the light. The more immoral our world becomes, the more exhausted and addicted to its own perverse appetites that it finds itself. Let me tell you, the more appealing a real Christianity of real righteousness will become because it will become for so many a way out. The early church proved that, and we need to hear that. Second reason for giving you all this is just simply this. Our church purpose statement that you see behind me in those lifestyle points, this is the kind of person we're trying to produce here. Every one of these reasons rooted in the Scripture. But the reason morally pure is there is because like the early church understood, there is an inseparable link that exists between the believability of what we proclaim and how we live. You know, the young generation, the busters, the mosaics who are really this other little group way down who are just young teenagers now growing up, they are so media savvy. Every politician they look right through. Every ad they look right through. They see through it. They don't believe any of it. Their mind is always asking, what's the gimmick? What's the catch? What's the hook they're trying to get into me? And you know, when you come today proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ, they hear it just the same way. Just a gimmick. Just a hook. Just another institution trying to fatten itself. You know the only thing they believe? Proof. 
That's the only thing they believe. Proof. The only thing the early empire understood was proof. And had those Christians gone about living like everybody else but proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there would be no church. But the church provided its believability by its lifestyle. And any church that doesn't put a strong emphasis on the connection between belief and lifestyle is a church wholly lacking. Wholly lacking. The idea that churches cannot draw lifestyle lines for its members is ridiculous. We're a corporate community with a passionate agreement that we're going forward into the life of Jesus Christ and we are accountable to one another. Churches who say that faith is a private affair, that we're insulated from public accountability or corporate accountability, that's ridiculous. You don't find that on the pages of the New Testament. You find a church looking at one another and encouraging one another and imploring one another and exhorting one another into holy living and how you live affects me. But more importantly, it affects the advancement of the kingdom of God. And any religion, any church that doesn't make that connection, what they end up doing is advertising, in fact, that Christianity doesn't work. That it's just all vocal and never practical. And you know what? Today, that's what the world believes. That's why the church as an institution has dropped from the 50s as being the number one most respected institution, now down to number 10. Well, you wouldn't believe what's in, over it. That's why when pollsters take polls of Christians who fill churches Sunday after Sunday and ask them specific lifestyle questions, and if you want, I'll give you a list of those questions and the results, the answers that are given are no different than the answers given by people who don't go to church. One of the things that shocked me was philanthropic giving is more from the secular community than the church community. Divorces are about the same. Watching pornography is about the same. Cheating is about the same. What's the difference? And you know what? That's the question the world asks. So what's the difference? Then I also want you to know just simply this. This phrase, moral purity is not just some strategy to draw people to the church. It's not a gimmick. It will draw people to the church, and I gave you some reasons why it will. But moral purity, you must understand, and the reason it's back there on the wall is because it is part and parcel of the salvation and the abundant life that Jesus Christ came to give us. Moral purity is best for us. It's a better way to live with better results and better satisfaction. I'll give you some reasons for that a little later on in the message. But let's look at the biblical reason for it. Turn over now to Romans 13, if you're not already there. And let's look at verses 11 through 14 of this text here, because it's a succinct summary on moral purity. And uh, what you find here is Paul kind of encouraging here Christians in this whole chapter about their public persona. And when he gets here, he talks about how they personally conduct themselves, starting in verse 11. Here's what he says. He says, first of all, in verses 11 and 12, check the time. Just check the time. Look at verse 11. He says, Knowing that the time that is already... Knowing that... Excuse me. And this do, knowing the time that is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is almost gone and the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. 
Now, if you look at that again and keep your eyes on those two verses, there are a lot of time phrases. And I like that because here in the 90s, we're very, very time conscious, aren't we? All got watches. We're all worried about, you know, the year 2000 and what it's going to do to all our computers and everything like that. And we're watching the clock. We have day timers. If you're married, you usually take a date once a week to go out and compare your day timers and plan your next week so everybody's schedule can work on time. Posters tell us time is our most precious commodity. Everything is clocked. We're so time conscious. What are we God conscious of God's time? That's what he's addressing here. Because the Bible sees time divided into two eras. This age, and it uses that phrase over and over again in the Bible, and the age to come. They just see those two times. This age is the world that now is. The age to come was the one that was inaugurated or planted in seed form when Jesus Christ came. And it's simmering underneath this age, waiting to fully blossom when Jesus Christ consummates history at His second coming. So in a sense, those ages now overlap. One is like the darkness, this age, right before the dawn. Its time is short. It's about to pass away. The age to come is right beneath the surface, like the sunrise. It's just about to break over the horizon when a new day will come, the day will come, and all things will be set in order by the Lord of heaven and earth. Now Paul's point in making that statement to us is this. He says, which time do you want to be shaping yourself up to? The time that one day will be irrelevant? The time that one day will be buried in the past and wiped away? Or do you want to shape your life up to the time that will be forever? It's time to think about it. That's what he's saying. You need to wake up. You need to think, what time do I want to be relevant to, past or the future? And if I want to be relevant to the future, then he goes on in verse 13 to say, well, then if you do, you need to draw some lines. And here's where it gets a little harder. We need to draw some lines. Look at verse 13. Let us behave properly, as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, and not in strife or jealousy. Now, in that one verse, he gives four things for us to think about. One thing is for us to be for. Three things is for us to be against. And let me tell you, it never changes, does it? They're always the same things. They're always the same things. I'm just amazed at that. History changes, but morality never changes. Because history is of man. And morality is of God. So he says, here's the first thing you need to be for. You need to be for personal purity. You need to behave properly. I want to tell you, as a young man... One of the smartest things that I ever did, I was challenged to do it, and I did it, and it has freed me up, was to decide what I was going to be for. And to draw some definitive lines on moral issues. To decide what I was going to believe and do about things like debt, or how I was going to think about my marriage and divorce, or what I was going to do in terms of alcohol, or what kind of things I would let my eyes gaze at. So in terms of literature, TV, movies, and I had to come to terms with what movies I wouldn't go to see in advance and whether I'm going to pay my debts on time and how I was going to decide about what I should give away. And it was so healthy to draw lines in advance. Let me tell you why it's taken so much pressure off. 
Because by drawing lines in advance and deciding in advance why I'm drawing those lines and deciding what the benefits for drawing those lines were, it helped me survive the spontaneous moment. Have you been there? You know when you're in the spontaneous moment and you hadn't thought it through and you don't know why and you're not sure what the benefits of moral purity would be? And how do you always choose? I can tell you how you always choose. Wrong. That's how you choose. You always choose wrong. You're standing there and somebody says, let's go see such and such a movie. Okay. What's it about? Well, it's about this. Oh, you know, rated R and, you know, we'll have to suffer through a few things. And you're saying, well, I don't know, but you're standing there and it's right after having a nice dinner at a restaurant and everybody's going to go. And so what do you say? Okay. But you don't say, if you hadn't thought about it and you hadn't drawn a line, you don't say, no, I'm really not going to do that and here's why. And then you give a definitive answer. When I made that decision, it has freed my life up and it has given me so many times a way of not feeling guilty. Just because I drew lines. Unfortunately, most Americans, as the pollsters tell us, don't draw lines. They live in the present all the time. And their ethics are situational ethics. Drawing lines allows you to do battle with a world that's immoral, increasingly immoral. Drawing lines helps you to be creative. You're on the lookout for things. For instance, recently I was up in northwest Arkansas and a friend said, hey, I found something you might be interested in. He started talking about it. And the minute he did, I said, I, I want that. I want to try that out. I want to see if that's real. What we were talking about, we were, I was bemoaning the fact that, you know, television, the language on television is it's gotten so filthy. It has. Now, if you, if you come from where I've drawn my line, it's horrendous. That's why I talk to the TV all the time. And, uh, and, I, and I always hate disappointing my sons when there is a movie that's a good movie, but it's got certain language in it. It might even be three or four moments where they've just thrown it grat gratuitous filth. And so you sit there and nobody can enjoy the movie because dad's jumping. You know, I just don't like it. Well, this guy told me about this little thing called TV Guardian, TVG. All it is is a little thing that hooks on your TV. And what TV Guardian does is it's plugged in to read the closed captioning within your set. And so as it sees filth coming, it, re it takes note of that, and it'll come on your screen. It'll say down at the bottom, TVG, and it'll take note of that, and it'll silence the voice and put an alternative phrase at the bottom of the screen. <laughs> Now, I thought that that wouldn't work, and so because I'm a skeptic, I'm the kind of the Missouri guy, show me, so I got it. I've been using it for the last two or three months, and it is such a relief. You can get a movie, and you're watching Jurassic Park, and somebody goes, oh, and all of a sudden it goes, darn, down there. <laughs> or it goes, oh, man, you know? And, and, and it, just, it just makes the whole evening so much better. And, and now that so much programming on TV today is required to be closed captioning. You can do channel surfing and every time you change the channel, every time a commercial comes up, it'll say either TVG, so you know it's protected, or it'll say no TVG. Of course, it can't do live things, but it can do almost everything else. And let me tell you, that's just one little thing in the war, but it's such a helpful thing. And I got so excited about it, I ordered a thousand brochures there in the bookstore. <laughs> so if you want to look at them to help your family, especially if you have young children, they're up there for you to look at and take a look at. Uh, after the service. Now, Paul turns to another thing we should draw a line against. He says we should draw a line against social immorality. That's what I label it, social immorality, because he puts it this way, not in carousing and drunkenness. And by that, Paul means drunkenness and carousing 
the Greek phrase is telling us wild parties supported by alcohol. It's that superficial, pathetic conversation that most people have to engage in because they can't make real conversation, so they have to come in and get liquored up to make conversation. And they call it fun. And I've grown up in that environment. And I never saw it to be fun. I saw people unable to engage in real conversation. And so somewhere, and some of you are college students, singles, young people, somewhere you need to decide what you believe about this. Not because the church told you to believe it. Not because some fundamentalist pastor told you to do it. That's no good. It won't work but because you wanted to be a living witness to the power of Jesus Christ and you wanted something more in life than superficial conversation about the Razorbacks and the weather. You wanted to talk about real life and have real fun and not have alcohol-assisted social life. And drunkenness, is there any way? No. And so you've got to decide, is that the best way to live, or is there another way? Is there a promise here that leads to a better life? The Scripture says when you commit drunkenness, you commit social immorality. And it has an impact on you, and it has an impact on the kingdom of God, and it has an impact on the credibility of the message of Jesus Christ. Now, there are all kinds of conservative churches where they hear that, and they go out and it's like little kids getting away with something behind the scenes from the pastors. We're bigger than that. We don't have to act that way. If you're going to do it, then do it. And tell me you decided because you drew your line there. And when I asked you, how do you support that? You tell me. But don't, don't be playing around like a little kid trying to get caught with his hand in the cookie jar. That is the very childishness that the Scripture looks at and says, where is that going? It's tougher on the next one. Notice what it says on the next. He says, it's against what he calls sexual immorality. The word there is sexual promiscuity and sensuality. The word sexual promiscuity really is one short word in Greek. It just means the word bed. It was a first century euphemism for shacking up. That's literally what it means, shack up. Don't shack up and don't get involved in lewd conduct. That's what the next word means, things like pornography and those kind of things. And again, somewhere you have to look in yourself in the mirror and decide what you believe about these things. Not because the church told you so, but because you wanted the full salvation of Jesus Christ and the abundant life that He promised, and you actually believe that's going to take you somewhere. And if you don't draw a line, in somebody's apartment is too late. Because you always decide wrong, right? And that's what he's saying here. He said, don't do that. When I was working with Family Life, speaking at their conferences, we always used to have the engage session. And in the engage session, we'd break out, you know, uh, uh, engage men, engage women. And one of the things I found around the country was how many couples were sleeping together as Christians before marriage. By the time you were in that conference, got to that time, you know, on Saturday afternoon, a lot of openness was occurring, and the girls were over there crying because they were sleeping with their boyfriends, and we'd been in a Christian conference all weekend. And some of the guys 
as we talked about, that would challenge me. And it'd say, well, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I'd say, you don't? Really? And I said, on what authority? And they said, well, where do you get your authority? And I said, well, how about just, for instance, 1 Thessalonians 4, where Paul says, and this is the will of God, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And the question is, do you believe that or not? And are you going to bet against the future for the past or not? See, we live in a day where people are desperately wanting to see something of reality and believability. And if you're not living it, listen to me, you don't believe it. And there's no reason to be here. This is not a place just to get some guilt relief. This is a place where people are passionately committed to Jesus Christ. And they're measuring their lives by the Bible. And they want to be morally pure. Not because they have to. Not because the pastor told them to. But because they believe there's life there. A better life. The last statement he says is that we need to be against what he calls community immorality. Notice he says, not in strife and jealousy. Jealousy being, you know, where you're constantly, critically comparing yourself with somebody and if you don't measure up, then you cut them down. Strife meaning gossip, creating divisions, undercutting people. One's an attitude, the other's an action that divide people and create hard feelings. The Bible says here that that's immorality. Now, now, now here's the thing you've got to hear me, because some of you, the first two, you'd feel like I'm not guilty. But I want you to hear, that immorality is placed with these other two. To help us understand that, it's saying that to be jealous, to create division, is, is at the same level as drunkenness and fornication. It's immorality. And it hurts people. James is even stronger in his little book of James. He says it's demonic to cause strife, to be selfishly ambitious, and to cut people down and trying to get on top of them, to live your life lusting after what somebody else has. That's community immorality. But don't stop being jealous and don't stop gossiping because you heard it here. Because a pastor told you. The only way to really stop is because you believe that there is a better life. That, that going against those things is better with better input, better satisfaction. Finally, Paul says in verse 14, he says, you know, you need to put on the power. Put on the power here. Check the time put aside these things and then finally put on the power. Look at verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. Really, that's one concept. And it's really important to hear this. You cannot go out as a Christian, and so many have in churches in the past, because all they heard was no, 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 no. You can't live life that way with no's. Because if you try to live life with no's, what happens is you clean out your life and it leaves this huge vacant container that worse things then come in and fill. The only way you can say no is when you're also saying yes. And what are you saying yes to? You're saying yes to Jesus Christ 
Yes to His life. Yes to His approval. Yes to His power. Yes to the sense of His affirmation. Wanting to be worthy before Him because you believe His life is where real life is. And you do that by faith. But let me tell you, if you live as long as I do in the Christian faith, you won't be always living it by faith. You'll be living it by experience. You'll be living it because you've already found out you know it's true. You'll be living it because when you look at other people who chose not to live that way and then compare yourself with their life and look and see how you're doing, you're saying, Jesus really said the truth. <laughs> I am so glad I didn't do that. You know, when they did a poll on sexual satisfaction among Americans, guess who are the most satisfied sexually? Playboys? Party animals? The weekend live-ins? No. No. The most sexually satisfied in marriage are those who went into marriage morally pure. They, 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 they com constantly communicate a higher level of marriage satisfaction and a higher level of intimacy within marriage. I've seen that even in my office. I have a couple of friends who in their previous life were some of the playboys around Little Rock. And they have communicated to me with tears, with tears, the inability to connect well with their wives because of all of the experiences that tend to now undercut that intimacy from previous relationships. And you should hear them. You sit there and you don't know how to relieve them. You wish you could somehow go in there and erase the past. Did God know what He was doing when He said morally pure? Was He up there saying, I'm going to say that they need to be morally pure so that they can really be square and have a really sterile, cold lifestyle? <laughs> or did He say it because He was saying, no, there's life here and they're going to experience intimacy and fellowship and community and a clear conscience and a sense of life as life moves the way it wants to move more than any other way they could live. And I want to protect them. Don't go do it because I said it. Just consider it. But please don't do this. Please don't go out and not decide because to not decide is a decision and you'll decide wrong. I've been there and I've done that and you'll do it too. What are the benefits of moral purity? Let me close by just giving you five. And we won't spend a lot of time, but I just want to list them for you. I probably could give a lot more, but here's just five that came immediately to mind as I thought about somebody who really cast their lot into the life of Jesus Christ. First, they will have a better life. They will. One of the aspects of a better life is you'll see God. You know how I know that? Because in Jesus' first sermon, He said, Blessed are the pure of heart for they shall see God. If you're saying, you know, people talk about encounters with God, and I've never had one of those. Check the purity in your life. Because God just doesn't reveal Himself to anybody. <laughs> he doesn't cast His lot with just anybody. But those who have passionately said, I want to pursue Jesus Christ, and we're never going to do it perfectly, but we're doing it with passion. We're doing it because we believe it. And we want to make progress in it. It's to those he reveals himself. And let me tell you, when he does, that's a better life. Not to mention all the things that I've already mentioned that 
We have now a statistical analysis that say that people who live within moral boundaries, who have a strong religious conviction, those people are healthier physically, they are health, more healthy mentally, they have better marriages, higher marriage satisfaction, they have a better sense of community. And those things aren't just guesswork. Those things, you can go find the studies to prove them. A better life. Secondly, you'll have a better legacy. I think there are two things as you get older you'd love to have. One is a good name. There are a lot of people who get at a certain part of their life and they begin to grieve because they don't have a good name. Moral purity gives you a good name. And if God blesses you with children, moral purity gives you a good offspring. You have children who every statistical study will tell you are healthier, they're more secure, they have better self-esteem, they have a better sense of security of themselves, they feel like life is not out of control, that it's within their control because of the understanding they have at home rather than feeling like a victim. Go ask school teachers. Just ask them. If they can identify in any class the kids who have committed parents who are living consistently before their children. And they know the ones who do, and they also know the ones who don't. But if you live morally pure, you'll have a good name, and you'll have a good offspring. Thirdly, you'll be a better citizen. You'll be a credit to your community. Because you've learned to be involved and invested in your community, and the way you do it will bring assets to your community. And the community itself will grow stronger and healthier. And what a blessing I hope we ultimately be to Little Rock. That's why in Proverbs 11, 11, it says, by the deeds of the righteous, those people who've chosen to be righteous, a city is exalted. But it happens just the opposite when people choose to live by situational ethics in the spontaneous moment. You will be a better witness. And we've already pointed out how that advanced the church in the early days. It declares that Christianity is worthy of real consideration. But churches that are filled with people who like what goes on there, they like the aura, they like the atmosphere, they like the sense of the security they get week to week, but have no thought of applying that in their life. They do more damage to the church than anyone. That's why in Romans 2 it says, because of you the name of God is blaspheme among the pagans. What a legacy there is for that. And then lastly you will have a better welcome. And where? The day you meet Jesus Christ. You will either meet Jesus Christ with your head up or your head down. But you'll meet Him. Because the Scripture says we'll all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and render to Him every deed done in the body, whether good or bad. And how wise it is to say, no, I intend to have my head up and I intend to run to the Father at the end, rather than shrink from Him. Do you want the world... Listen, church, I'm speaking now as a corporate body. Do you want the world to take Jesus Christ seriously? Then your life... Listen. Then your life must be the answer why. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.